In preparation for this um, sermon, um, I came across an, an article by the New York uh, Times Book Review, and they asked a couple of contemporary authors what they thought was the most underrepresented subjects in fiction today. And one lady by the name of Ayana Mathis said she thought joy was the most underrepresented subject today, that writers were flummoxed by joy. She says, I quote, with few exceptions, we writers, and I am no less guilty than anyone else, seem to have decided that despair, alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. In our ennui, boredom, and end-of-days malaise, we are suspicious of the joy and fullness of life. Do you hear what she's saying? This suspiciousness about joy and being flummoxed by joy. Certainly we see this played out on our cinema screens with all the post-apocalyptic, end-of-days disaster movies, Armageddon, X-Men Apocalypse, Avengers Endgame, A Quiet Place, Bird Box, Mad Max, Fury Road, Terminator 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and I'm told later on this year, 6, Dark Fate. We can't get enough of it. And it's not just on the cinema screen. Think of the most popular TV shows of the past few years with the rise of what's called the anti-hero, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, House of Cards, Game of Thrones. Give us a smile, Jon Snow. But instead, all we get is this brooding look. Now, I don't know if you believe life imitates art or art imitates life, but it is a sobering statistic that in this country, last year alone, there were 64.7 million prescriptions for antidepressants, or happy pills, as they are also called, that British people now rank amongst the most depressed people in the Western world, according to new data from the OECD. Now look, I don't know if that's you as you come to church today. I don't know if you are someone here who is flummoxed by joy. Because there is a lot of alienation and despair and bleakness, not just out there, but in here. So how do we live a life of joy? Is it just for people who are sort of like the up people, glass half full? Is it really possible to live a life of joy through all the ups and downs? And if so, how is it possible? Well, look, come with me to these two verses, verses six to seven of chapter one. Two verses that we are going to see are bursting with joy. And three parts to this joy. We're going to see a joy in hope, a joy in trials, and a joy in glory. First, a joy in hope. Just take a look at that first part of verse 6, the first phrase, in all this you greatly rejoice. In all what? Well, in all that Peter has been talking about in verses 3 to 5, which we looked at last week. This living hope that every Christian believer has been born into by the great mercy of God. The hope of a resurrection from the dead based on Christ's own resurrection from the dead. The hope of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance of this world made new again, made perfect, where we'll see Jesus face to face. And this is a living hope. That is, it's not a dead hope. It is a certain hope. It is guaranteed 
this future, this resurrection, this inheritance, because every Christian believer is being shielded by God's power. If you missed last week's sermon, let me encourage you to catch up online. That was all in verses three to five. And Peter is saying, this is the source of a real and lasting joy. Your living hope, this certain future coming to you. I'm 41 years old. I'm told this is a classic age for a midlife crisis. Um, you get grayer, you get slower, you get flabbier. It takes longer to recover from injuries and tough workouts. Um, some of you know I play a lot of squash. I lost a game of squash the other day to someone younger than me and someone fitter than me. And I have to admit, I was somewhat grumpy about it. And I was bemoaning my lack of fitness and I thought, my goodness, at 41, it's all downhill from here. And how slow will I be by 50? And how little power I'll have by 60? Will I even be able to hold my racket at age 70? And if that's the case, what's the point of playing now? And I was getting all melodramatic about it. Whilst this was happening, I was meant to be prepping, you know, for my sermon. I thought, well, I better preach this to myself before I aim to preach it to others. And so I was forced to reflect on my hope in Jesus Christ. And well, look, I realized that, okay, every day I may be getting slower physically, but if this Christian hope is true, then every day is also a day closer to be with Jesus Christ. Every day may be a day when my body deteriorates bit by bit, but it is one day also closer to a new resurrection body. And the more I reflected on this, the more I found my grumpiness subside somewhat and I was feeling better about my next game of squash. Now, of course, we're talking about losing a game of squash here. This is a real first world problem. But the point still holds. No matter the problems you may be facing right now, focus in just on the here and now. You'll be flummoxed by joy. It can be really depressing, the here and now. Because we get ill, we get old, we die. What is the point of it all? It can be very bleak, very despairing. But Christian hope can bring joy now. Because Christian hope says a better day is definitely coming. A better life, a better body is coming. Christian hope says no matter what you lose in this life, it will be more than made up for in the next life. Christian hope says in the words of Hercule Poirot, an appointment with death, Joe and I watched it last week, there is nothing in the world so damaged that it cannot be repaired by the hand of Almighty God. There is nothing in the world so damaged that it cannot be repaired by the hand of Almighty God. Without this certainty, Poirot says, we should all of us be mad. And yet with this certainty, the Apostle Peter says, the certainty of our Christian hope, we can all of us be joyful. Well, that's the first thing to see about a real and lasting joy. It is a joy in hope. Secondly, it is a joy in trials. And we'll spend most of our time here on this point. Verse six again. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds 
of trials. If there is one thing that can rob our joy in life, it is suffering, it is grief, it is trials. And yet these Christians are still rejoicing amidst these trials. How is that possible? How do they do it? Three reasons. First, because these trials are only ever temporary. Did you notice that? Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Remember the context of this letter. Peter describes these Christians, and actually every Christian believer, as an exile in this world, like a foreigner, like a stranger, people suspicious of us, cultural and social pressures against Christians, against the church. Just um, glance over to chapter 2, verse uh, 12, where Peter exhorts his Christian readers to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or across to chapter 3, verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Or chapter 4, verse 4, over the page. And those outside the church are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Finally, chapter 4, verse 14, at the bottom there. If you are insulted simply because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is the kinds of trials that Peter is speaking about in the context of this letter. Okay, the Christians are not facing here outright physical persecution. Their lives are not at threat. Their social status is at threat. They are being accused. They are being maligned. They are being verbally abused. They're being insulted purely for the name of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? But, says Peter, these trials are only temporary. They won't last. They will come to an end, though now for a little while. Notice also Peter does not downplay the pain of these trials. He says these Christians are suffering grief. This is no superficial joy that he is talking about. This is a deep-rooted joy that recognizes the pain of these trials, recognizes the evil behind them, but on another level, realizes these trials will come to an end. And something far better is coming, as we just saw in point one. How do marathon runners keep going for 26.2 miles with all that physical pain, that mental turmoil hitting the wall? Is it not? Because they know. Even though it is 26.2 miles, it is in the end only 26.2 miles. It will come to an end. Something better is coming. The joy of the finish line. How is it that so many women remain joyful through pregnancy? I've observed it with Joe, four pregnancies. I mean, to me, that seems like nine months of suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Morning sickness is more like all the time sickness. Sore back, bad hips, can't sleep at night because of this weight that's growing upon you. As for labor, I won't describe that here. That's horrifically painful. How do women remain joyful through all this? Is it not because they know that something better is coming? 
that this pain, this difficulty, this grief will come to an end. The nine months will finish. And then a baby will be born. And they can hold them in their arms. So it is with our trials. We may not like them. We may not understand them. But how do we keep going amidst them? How do we remain joyful in them? Is it not because we know these trials are temporary? The insults, the accusations, the verbal abuse, it will all come to an end. Even if we have to face it every day of our lives, relative to eternity, it is still only now for a little while. And then we will see Jesus face to face and he will hold us in his arms. Now the reason why we can have joy in trials, the second reason, is because of who is in control of them. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It is easy to miss those two words, had to. But these are two very important words because it shows the trials that we face in the Christian life are not random. They are not out of control. They are not down to fate, chance, blind physical forces, but behind each and every trial is God himself. A God who knows exactly what is best for us. A God who is in control of absolutely everything. In the Jackson household, it is sometimes difficult to encourage our children to eat all their greens and finish their vegetables. Yuck, don't like it. Disgusting. Want something else. In these times that happen quite regularly, Joe and I try and point out to our children that they have to eat their greens for their good, for their health. We try and explain to them that we're on their side. We're their parents. We love them. We want what's best for them. And quite frankly, at this age, we know what's best for them. So eat your greens. Now, I'm not saying that when we have this discussion, you know, miraculously, it transforms from moaning and complaining to rejoicing as they appreciate God's uh, dad's sovereignty over the situation. But I can tell you, it does help for them to know that we're for them. We want what's best for them. It's for their good that they have to eat them. And look, in a similar sort of way, it's the same with our trials that we face. We might not like them, we might find them disgusting, whatever. But God is behind them. Do you see that? A God who always knows what's best for us. Even if we have to, for a little while, suffer grief in all kinds of trials, God knows what he's doing, we can trust him with it. A third reason why we can have joy in trials is because of the purpose of our trials. Verse 7. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, so that for the express purpose of, that is why these trials come, for the provenness of your faith, do you realize that faith has to be tested? That is why we have to face these trials. Trials which prove to us and to others the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? For our faith to be tested. 
for our faith to be proven? Well, because faith in Jesus Christ is, as the verse says, of greater worth than gold. Remember, gold at that time was the most precious commodity of all. And Peter is saying faith in Jesus Christ is more precious than that. There is nothing more precious in the whole universe than faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the verse says gold perishes. Just as everything else in this universe will one day perish on God's judgment day. And what is the one thing that can save us on that day? The one thing that can save us is faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to have a resurrection from the dead. That is the only way to enjoy this inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, this perfect world made new again. Faith in Jesus Christ. I doubt many of us looked forward to tests at school, spelling tests, maths tests, examination tests. You had people who were really cocky about it, thought they knew it all. What do I need a test for? Had other people panicking about it. I know nothing, I'm going to fail. Everybody else in between. But those tests certainly showed who knew their stuff and who didn't, and whose hard work and revision was genuine or not. So it is with our trials in the Christian life. When your parents give you the silent treatment, friends malign you because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, think you've made a terrible mistake, tell you so, perhaps even threaten you. Well, I don't know what this means for our relationship anymore. And you stand firm for Jesus Christ, you keep trusting in him, you face these trials in this way, it shows that your faith is genuine. And that Jesus Christ comes first in your life above your parents or your friends. When your boss asks you to do something which is contrary to your Christian faith and perhaps puts a lot of pressure on you in the process, you do this, this will be really good for your career. Don't do this. Well, don't know what that might mean for your career. But you stand firm in it. Keep trusting Jesus through this trial. Obey him. You show your faith in him is real. It is genuine. You care more what he thinks than what your boss thinks. Trials prove our faith. The most precious commodity in the universe. The only thing that can save us from the judgment to come. Not just that, trials also refine our faith. Did you notice the second way Peter contrasts gold and faith? Faith is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. 1,064 degrees Celsius is the melting point of gold. This is the temperature that jewelers heat gold up to in a crucible, so it melts and the purities rise to the top, and then it can be scraped off. And the more pure the gold, the higher the carat value. Six carats, 25% pure gold, 24 carat gold, 99.9% .9 or higher pure gold. And Peter is drawing a comparison here between faith and gold. God is this master jeweler who deliberately turns up the heat in our lives in order to refine our faith, in order to expose the impurities of unbelief, to scrape them away, our self-confidence, and to bring us back to faith in Jesus Christ and a deeper faith in him. If you are someone here who trusts in your work too much, 
for your meaning and purpose to life, don't be surprised if you have to suffer grief in some sort of work trials. As God refines your faith, as God exposes the idolatry, a difficult colleague, pressure from the boss, particularly before you're a, because you're a Christian, so as to draw you back to a deeper appreciation of Jesus Christ as the ultimate meaning and purpose to life. If you're someone here who trusts too much in friendships or relationships or your own popularity for your sense of self-worth, fulfillment in life, don't be surprised if for a little while you have to suffer grief of a loss of social status, perhaps an unpopularity amongst your friendship groups. I can't believe you believe that. I can't believe all this time you've believed that. If that's what it takes to expose the impurities, to scrape them away, to refine your faith, to draw you to a deeper dependence in Jesus Christ for identity and our fulfillment to life. Three reasons then why we can rejoice in trials. They are temporary, they are from God, they prove and refine our faith, a joy in trials. Thirdly, finally, more briefly, end of verse seven, there is also a joy in glory. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, Peter is pointing his readers to the future when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice he doesn't say when Jesus Christ comes back as if he's off on sabbatical somewhere. No, when Jesus Christ is revealed because he is present with his people now. It's just that we can't see him. He's invisible. But one day he will be revealed and there'll be praise and there'll be glory and there'll be honor on that day. Instinctively, we tend to think that is the praise, the glory, and honor that we will give Jesus Christ for who he is, the ruler of the world, for what he's done for us as our maker and savior. Certainly that is in there, but many of the commentators point out that this praise, glory, and honor is also what will come to every Christian believer for their ongoing faith in Jesus Christ despite trials, through trials, holding on to Jesus throughout their life. Well done good and faithful servant. This is a picture here on that final day of us celebrating Jesus, absolutely, but also him celebrating his church, his people, and us celebrating with him together. And again, this future certainty can give us joy now. Imagine for a moment that you are a Liverpool FC supporter I'm sorry to do this for the Tottenham supporters amongst you. Tottenham have just lost to Liverpool in the Champions League final, but imagine just for the sake of this illustration for a moment that you are a Liverpool FC supporter. And it is the start of the season. And imagine that I tell you that on 1st of June 2019 in Madrid, Liverpool will win the Champions League. It is certain. I tell you that in advance, right, at the start of the season. What difference is that going to make to you through the season? through the ups and downs, through the injuries. Even when you're 3-0 down 
after the first leg against Barcelona in the semi-final? Would it not make a difference? Would there not still be a joy because you know the ultimate victory that's going to come? Liverpool are going to win. You're going to celebrate with the players. The players are going to celebrate with you. You know it's coming. Now, it might seem a ridiculous illustration. I don't know. But this is what is happening in the Christian life. The ultimate victory is coming. When we will celebrate with Jesus Christ, when he will celebrate with us. And it is absolutely certain. No one can take it from us, not through the ups and downs of life. And to cling to that, and to cling to that hope, is to give a joy now. No matter what comes your way. The ultimate victory is absolutely secure. This future glory to come. Now look, as we draw these three things together, do you notice how future-focused Peter is being here? It is a future hope. It is a future glory. Even when he's talking about present trials, what does he do? Points to the future when it will come to an end. I imagine there's no one here who wants to be a grumpy old man or a grumpy old woman, harking back to some glory days in the past. No one likes being around people who are constantly moaning and complaining about life. There's something really attractive about people that just have a joy to life. No matter what comes their way, we even have that phrase, they're a joy to be around. Don't you want to be that sort of person? I know I do. How is it going to happen? By clinging to this future hope, this uniquely Christian hope. If you keep focusing in on the here and now, the right now present, you will be flummoxed by joy. It is depressing. It is alienating. It is bleak. But if this Christian hope is true, this future hope, this future glory, seeing Jesus face to face, this world made new again, then that will give a joy to your life now and a joy that will keep flowing no matter what comes your way. Let me pray for that joy for each of us now. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much indeed for all the richness in each verse of this opening chapter of this letter. And thank you for the testimony of these Christians in Asia Minor and how they were rejoicing greatly no matter these trials they were facing, this cultural and social ostracism and pressure to stop following Jesus Christ. Pray, Father God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us that same joy today as we have this future focus and cling to our hope in Jesus Christ. Recognize this glory to come and any present trials we face now will one day come to an end. But that put joy in our hearts, a spring in our step as we go out today to serve Jesus afresh this week. And we ask it for his name's sake.